We have three kind of goals here for this sermon. And because of the longer readings, again, I've got my eye on the clock a little bit. Uh, But what I want to do here is I want to give us a a hat tip preview to the Set Apart Stewardship Series, which this is the kind of kickoff initiation Sunday for that. Not a lot of hoopla yet, but the next couple of weeks, a lot of hoopla. We're going to have some people talking before the service. At some point, we're going to ask you to make a devotional commitment to your faith in Christ for this coming year which will involve some form of discipline in your life. Maybe that'll just be what you're already doing. Psalm 23 in the morning and Psalm 1 at night and a proverb a day with a note on it. I mean, you can, if you haven't started yet that, you can decide for your devotion, do that. But there's going to be an opportunity to do some other things, things you might want to do a little more of to try to encourage your participation in your faith when you're not in this building. And we're also going to lead up to and have this main event. We've done this every year I've been here except for last year, where we'll get together on a Sunday morning off-site. This year, that's October 31st, Reformation Sunday. Church is going to be at the Rockford Country Club, and there will be a meal provided. We're going to have a guest preacher and speaker. His name is the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He's a professor at Fort Wayne, Indiana, and you will by no means be disappointed in, uh, in his presentation. He's one of the more entertaining men I've ever seen, and he speaks such clear truth. So this is all, though, part of a big idea, and here's the big idea, okay? It's that this altar belongs to you. This is your altar. It's also Jesus' altar. It belongs to Jesus. He put it here for it to be your altar, wherein you would feed from Jesus for the rest of your lives and your children's lives and their lives after you. And if not your children, then someone else's children who will move here and benefit from this outpost of Jesus' kingdom, his altar. And so this main event day at which we ask you not only to commit yourself to devotion and service, but to financially commit yourself to St. Paul Lutheran Church is about committing to making sure this altar is here for others who are not you. Since you have received the blessing from this altar, we want it to keep going from generation to generation. How do we do that? We get together and we say, we're going to do that. Now we're going to do it one more year. We're going to do it this hard. One of the other goals about this, I don't always mention this, but it is the undercurrent goal of the entire every year set apart program is to believe it's possible for us to become a tithing congregation. What do I mean by that? It doesn't mean that you count every penny and you, you, you tithe on your mint and your cumin. But what it does mean is that you don't hold back from what you get and you know that the more that you get, the more you've been given to share, and the more that you share, the more that you're going to get. And since there's absolutely no way to financially give a church a tough time, if just 10 families will tithe, you'll always be able to afford a pastor. Well, then you as a people want to commit yourselves to that idea. And the Set Apart Stewardship main event every year gives you a chance to grab at it without having to jump all the way to the tithe. So every year, here's my real request from you. You figure out what you gave last year and you give more this year. Inflation is always 3%. You just go up 1%, would you? Go up 1% every year on what your total giving is out of all of your income. And within a decade, you'll be a tither. And I guarantee you, you will not repent of that. You will not be disappointed by that. You'll be glad to be a congregation that knows what it is and what it's doing. 
which is not hoarding wealth in the last days, but in fact, sending the message that the last days have come upon us to the ends of the earth, fearlessly and with confidence that every dollar invested in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is eternally invested. That doesn't mean every dollar put in the plate is used well. However, it begins by us committing to put dollars in the plate together for the sake of this place and we who gather here. Yeah. So then in that, why are we gathered here to talk about putting money in the plate? No, that's just what has to happen to keep the building and the altar taken care of. But around this place, in this place, what's it designed for? It's made for you to come here and hear the Bible read and then hear the Bible talked about as the promise that this meal is your feast of victory in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that when you feast on this meal, week in and week out, you cannot die. Ah, Amen, hallelujah. Even though you die, yet you will live. Which again, sets you apart from everyone else in this world. Everyone else out there facing every fear of death they can imagine, but there's one everyone's more scared of right now than the rest. And you do not have to be as afraid as them. In fact, you don't have to be afraid at all. You can actually decide, you know what? If it seeks me out, if death finds me and takes me down, it was just Jesus, my Lord, taking me home anyway. And the fact that so much of Christianity doesn't remember that is what should scare us the most. The fact that we've been so willing to put our faith in other industries besides the kingdom not for just food production or some average life, but literally to make it so no one dies anymore. What a godless, idolatrous world we live in, and it's about to kill itself in pursuit of a God who is not the true God. While his kingdom remains again, and this is his promise, his kingdom remains never to fall, always to stand. It just doesn't stand the way other kingdoms do. It stands by a promise. He is risen. Hallelujah. And he says, look, look what they did to me. They crucified me. They killed me. And so here's what I ask of you. Just dwell here and don't believe that here is what it's about. Believe that what I did with the resurrection will be sufficient to make what it's about next forever. And it'll be awesome. And while you're here waiting, just don't forget that and tell some people, would you? Because it's going to be a great time eventually, even though right now, to be sure, thorns, thistles, sorrows. Yeah. Now, okay, the Gospel of Matthew is a, I don't know how to say this, it, it's, it's foreign to us. You know pieces of it. You know clips of it. You know every year at Easter, or me, yeah, Easter, Good Friday, we get all pieces of that passion we just heard read. They get dropped in here and there with Luke and Mark and John. You get all sorts of stuff. So it's hard to get is the flavor of Matthew. And part of it maybe is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke can seem similar on first glance. They don't seem like, or they seem like the same story. But if you just sit down and you let it be read, and that's what I wanted to do for us this morning. The reason we took that time to read two full chapters is I wanted to hear Matthew's voice. I wanted you to believe that Matthew wants to tell you something. It's not just about how there's this, where to go. There's this big magic book and some people know it and some people don't and you ought to read it, but you don't want to. No, these are real people. They lived real lives. 
They died real deaths, and they left behind various accounts over the course of thousands of years that have all pointed to one reality, which Matthew sums up in this thing we call a gospel, a good news account of the single man, Jesus Christ. So for a moment here, I want you to pretend you've never heard any of this stuff before, okay? I'm not going to read Matthew to you. I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to try to talk about it with a different spin on the entire story. And and here's the idea I want you to, to be. Here's the character I want you to be. I want you to be a sellout and a hypocrite who's very wealthy. You're doing well because you left your family behind. You left your people behind. You left your religion behind. You're a tax collector or a publican, that's what they're called back in the day. I want you to imagine that you're that guy. You're, you're a publican. You've sold out your country for money. And then I want, to rem- want you to imagine, again, into that world in which you're living like that, feeding your gluttony on your contentment with porridge, there shows up a king, a bona fide and actual king of your people the ones you sold out, the ones you thought could never amount to anything again. Here he is, foretold of old, the emperor. That's Matthew's gospel. And that's Matthew's story. How his life was dramatically changed by this encounter with Jesus, which uh, we'll get to where it happens. I believe it's around chapter four. Uh, when you get, no, no, that's incorrect. It'll be later. I'm going to take you through it piece at a time. One other thing I want to tell you, though, I'm going to forget about it if I don't say it now. One thing that sets Matthew apart uh, from all the other gospels is how often he says, because the Old Testament said so. And then he quotes an Old Testament verse. This is just up to chapter four, okay? Chapter 123, he quotes the virgin, virgin will conceive and bear a son. Sound familiar, right? Chapter 2, 6, there's a quote from Micah. Oh, you little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Chapter 2, 15, out of Egypt, I called my son. Chapter 2, 17, a quote about Rachel weeping for her children. Chapter 2, 23, that confusing quote about how he shall be called a Nazarene. No one can quite figure out where that comes from. I think I know, but chapter 3, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's Isaiah. Chapter 4, 6, quoted by the devil, lest you dash your foot against a stone and then some, right? And then you have chapter 4, 4, 4, 7, and 4, 10, all Jesus. It is written, it is written, it is written, yeah? Away with you, Satan, that part he added. Chapter 4, 15 to 16, a great light has dawned on those who dwell in shadow in the valley of death. That's more Isaiah for you. Um, and then Jesus begins to preach. As he finally opens his mouth and starts to preach, repent for the kingdom is at hand right after that. That's just the first four chapters, how many Old Testament quotes he shoves in there. He doesn't really slow down that much, the rest of the book. So if you do open Matthew this week, you want kind of, you're like, I heard Pastor Fisk, I did the thing, I'm going to give one evening, I'm going to open Matthew. Here's what I suggest. Open anywhere in the book, read until you find him say, so it is written, that Old Testament quote, use the notes in the Bible to find out where that quote's from and go read that chapter. That's it. Do that this week. See what you find. I bet you it means more than what you find when you turn on the TV. I bet you it does more to wake you up about what life is really about than what you do when you go to the internet and you check your messages. 
I guarantee you it will fill you up more than anything else on this life, although it may not give you energy. You might be tired after all. You might be tired after all. And it might just help you rest, which I would suggest is precisely what the scriptures are there for, which is to help you rest and rest well. All right, so here, here is my rendition in a few moments of the, the gospel according to St. Matthew, the empire of Jesus according to the publican. The whole book begins with his lineage. It's so boring. You look at it, you're like, I don't want to read it. He begot him, he begot him, Bikobiah, begot Shikomiah, begot Shemophiah. You don't even know what's going on. But that's the whole Old Testament. It's the whole Old Testament. And he's basically saying, look, every single one of these kings was bringing this guy. All their lives, all their stories, good, bad, up, down, left, right, was bringing this guy. His blood from Adam to Abraham to David to here. And just like that, this, this king who is greater than names like Jeconiah, a real one who you will not remember, but he is the primary name of the king who went off to exile and had Shaaltiel, who had Zerubbabel, who moved back to the land. Like, we don't know who these guys are, right? But, but the first men to come to Jesus are men we don't know either. This is really key. So here is the lineage of the king. Here he is born. You get, you know, Joseph is told, name him Jesus. And then suddenly who shows up? But royal guests Three wise magic men from the East coming, bringing their powers of ancient civilization, saying, we have watched the stars and waited aeons for the king of kings. And here's this baby. But they don't go to the baby. Remember this? First, they go to the uh, Prince Herod, the phony king of, uh, of Israel, yeah? uh, the Idumean, and his tyranny. And they tell him about how there's a new king coming. And he doesn't like it. It's a great like empire versus empire story. And he goes and he, he kills all of those young baby boys in Jerusalem. We zoom from there forward a lot in the story. They, the, the, uh, Jesus and his family, they escape down to Egypt. That's that out of Egypt I called my son quote from earlier. But after that childhood narrative, we jump way forward into the life of John the Baptist who just shows up out of nowhere. But again, what is he proclaiming? This is the key. He's proclaiming a kingdom that is coming with wrath. A kingdom that is coming to destroy the earth with fire. Now, what we American Christians need to know is that that's not a metaphor. That's not a symbol. That's not an old story. He hasn't forgotten. That's still actually the plan. The entire place is going to be destroyed by fire eventually. And so we should beware that we don't want to be stuck here when that happens. We'd much rather be protected in the mighty fortress of the God who's going to do the destroying. Yeah? That way we won't be destroyed by him. So this threat of the wrath bringer, John the Baptist preaching, is an awakening for us to say, oh, we're not in a good place. The kingdoms we see are not the kingdoms we want to be in. Then from there, the threat of wrath, we don't go to happiness. We go to the wrath bringer himself, in a sense, the accuser, a confrontation with the controlled opposition, the devil himself, out in the wilderness, a battle of wits and riddles and scripture, over which, make no mistake, the king never misses a beat. Jesus isn't fighting a dragon. He's trampling on a serpent. There's a major difference. Yeah. 
Don't miss the 40 days of fasting he does and the three tests he endures to overcome on your behalf before he then goes and calls more king's men. Remember, the story is from publican to king's man, from sinner to saved. He goes and he recruits four, two by two, two brothers, two brothers, four craftsmen of the gospel who will all be apostles, who will all be preachers of Christ. But notice again, he calls men to himself. He says, I'm a king, you're my men, follow me. And that is the message he still has for you. It's really no different. I, Jesus, am the king. Follow me. From that point, you have chapter 4 through 7. Well, 4 through 9. You have a combination of healings, preaching, and then more wonders. And so packaged between, he's healing everybody, and 10 stories about all sorts of miracles. He heals a leper. He heals a centurion's servant, Peter's mom. He calms the waves. He casts out two demons. He heals a paralytic. He stops the flow of blood. He raises a dead girl. He heals two blind people. He heals a mute. In between that and the story of endless healings at which he gets tired, you have this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Three solid chapters of Jesus talking. I don't like the word sermon. Think of it as the promises on the mountain or the declaration of the New Testament from the mouth of Jesus. I said before the start of the service that you need to reckon with Matthew before you reckon with the rest of the New Testament if you're new to Christianity, because it is where Jesus comes out of the guns presenting himself as himself. And the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, 7, and 8, oh, I got it wrong, chapter 5, 6, and 7, yeah, is par excellence Jesus speaking for himself, speaking for himself. Again, he follows us up with all of these wonders, 10 wonders to show that he's able to to claim this kind of authority. After that, there's these four he called earlier, right? He now has brought along a bunch more. He grabs eight of those and he names the total the 12. And he sends them out with a whole nother sermon. If you have a red letter Bible, don't necessarily do this now, but if you have a red letter Bible and you were to page through Matthew, you would see, Uh, Black, red, black, red, black, red, black, red, black, red, black. That is, there's five big chunks of red, five discourses or sermons that he gives throughout the book, Sermon on the Mount being the most well-known. The second one, though, the sending of the 12 from chapter 10 and into 11, or what you might call the not-so-great commission, if you're familiar with the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where he sends them to all nations, Here he says, don't go to all nations, go only to the Jews. He also tells them a bunch of other stuff. This is where they're given power to do miracles. It's very important to see. They didn't just kind of happen to do that. He actually says in this text, you guys can do this. He doesn't give that power to everybody. That all happens there in chapter 10 and 11. But then things get violent. Things get a little stirred up. Chapter 12 is all about how God made everything for us to receive and rest in his glory, and yet we think we have to use it for ourselves. And the way that this was being done most at that time was that the religious leadership was manipulating the day of worship called the Sabbath in order to turn it into a bank to make a lot of money at the temple. And they didn't like that Jesus was going around doing stuff on the Sabbath, including telling people not to pay that money. Not to do those things, to do as the Pharisees say, not as they do, to listen to the true law of Moses, but not what's been added on to it, on and on. They don't like what he says about the Sabbath. 
And this is where it goes from everybody loves Jesus, how it's been up to this point in the book, to not everybody loves Jesus anymore. Jesus is a problem for certain people, and they're going to begin to get rid of him. Don't miss, though, at the end. If you want to go look up one verse this week, you've got nothing else you're going to take from it today. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew eleven twenty eight. It is so good. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus says to the crowd, to all, to all. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Again, that's uh, chapter 12. Uh, after this, chapter 12, you have another discourse, a big chunk of, of sayings. This is seven parables all in a row. The sower, the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, the treasure, the pearl, and the net. Uh, there's lots of stuff we could do about, about them, but um, it's another section you could just go read. Chapter 13. It's all red letters. It's seven stories. And they kind of go from big to small. And if you can understand that all the parables of the kingdom are saying the same thing at the end of the day, they're going big to small in a circle. They get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Until at the middle, what I think you're supposed to see is that Jesus is going to save you. That it's up to him. That he's the one who does it at the end of the day. There is a verse I do want us to look at. Chapter 13, 34 to 35. If you have that there in front of you. This is at the end of that section on the parables. And I think it's pretty key wisdom to hold on to, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, if you're young, if you're old. The, the question eventually comes up, why does he tell stories? Why does Jesus walk around talking about farmers and fishermen and seeds and all this stuff? And I have heard it said more than once by pastors in more than one church body. I'm going to put it simply. They say it nicer. It's because people are too stupid to learn anything and you can only tell stories. That's the only way to keep them paying attention. That's actually how I've heard it taught by LCMS pastors. It's completely wrong. The verse tells you, the verse tells you, uh, chapter 13, 35, 34 to 35. Do I have it here in front of me? Yeah, there it is. Uh, all these things, it says, I'm in New King James right now. All these things, Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept from the secret, um, kept secret from the foundation of the world. Oh, you know what? This is fun. So I know there's more to this that I want to share with you right now because I set it up. So I'm going to glance over at a brother book for a moment. Mm -mm -mm -mm. It's going to be in Luke. You can follow me. Find your way to Luke. We're going to find the parallel passage. I want to make sure I give you the clear text. I, I missaw that yesterday as I was prepping. So the parallel passage in Luke, where it talks about why he speaks in parables. Oh, goodness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you. Yes, and 10. Thank you very much. 
Um, Luke 8, 9, and 10. So take these two together with that one from Matthew. But he, he's even more clear here as to why the parables. And it's not what you would think. It's the opposite of what you would think. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I've taken us a long way for this little point, but it's again a key point. The parables are there so that non-Christians won't get it. Only Christians get it. Non-Christians go to the parables and they get confused. They get distracted. They end up not at Jesus, not at his Lord's Supper, not at his commandments, not at love your neighbor as yourself, not at I'm forgiven, but at some other nonsense. And that's actually, again, he says this quoting Isaiah, that Isaiah had the same forecast. We talked about that last week. He was to preach against unrepentant people for his entire life until finally Hezekiah repents. Yeah. So here Jesus comes again and says the same thing. And then let's go back to that Matthew text again and see if we can make it tie together. 34 and 35. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. The point of these stories is to veil from the unbeliever the glory of God, lest the unbeliever take advantage of it. It's not that God doesn't want the unbeliever to become a believer. He just won't let him be saved as an unbeliever. He must see the parable for what it is. So if I can kind of summarize again, when a sower is casting seed and the seed falls on the different types of soil and it grows up, who's in charge of that salvation? The seed? No, it's the sower. Yeah. When, when the tares and the wheat grow up together and the master says, don't pull up the tares yet because I want my wheat to grow, who's in charge of planting the wheat and making sure it grows even with the tares? The same guy, the master. I'm not going to take you through all of them, but all the way through this story, the point is the utter almighty grace of God for you. But if you can't hear that, not only are the parables closed to you, the whole Bible is closed to you. The whole Bible is a confusing book of nonsense until you see that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe who embodies all of it as himself, the final gift for you. Then it all opens up and begins to make sense. All right, I'm going to press this forward here. Thank you for bearing with me. Chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 14, two more miracles, a lot of focus on these miracles. Feeding 5,000 Jews with five loaves of bread and two fish and walking on water. Followed up by this, he gives a sermon on hypocrisy, on hypocrisy, on pretending to be a believer. And following this, he has a confrontation with a Canaanite believer. I could spend an hour on this too. The idea is that there's a bunch of people who ought to get it. They ought to know what's going on. And all he can say to them is, you don't even see me. You're not even listening to me. And then along comes some woman, uh, you know, descended from Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite again. If Joshua and all of his people had fulfilled what God told them to do back in the day, this woman wouldn't be here. She should be dead. She was supposed to be killed in fire in her grandparents way, way back back when because of their evil. And again, was it good that the Old Testament people didn't fulfill those words? No, it was evil. They were punished for those words. And yet, what does God do? Think of Joseph. You meant it for evil. I mean it for good, God says. He always bends it for good. So here we have it. Hundreds, thousands of years later, here is this woman 
descended from those who were supposed to be killed for their wretched and wicked diabolical worship of demons and murder of babies in a reckless religion. Yet here she is begging Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And while the hypocrites around can't see him, she can. So what do you take from that? You see him, don't you? You want him, don't you? You need his grace, don't you? So rejoice, rejoice, and consider reading those words on hypocrisy, not so you can be condemned by them, but so you can be wise as you walk in a world filled with hypocrisy. Yeah? That's chapter 14 and 15. Chapter um, 16 is about whether you want a sign, looking for a sign, trying to find proof that God is with you. And what he tells you is you only get one, the resurrection. That's it. The resurrection of the king is the sign that the empire shall never fail. It is the sign that the kingdom shall reign forever and no other shall be given, he says. Now, to be fair, our sign of the Lord's Supper, this meal we eat, it is the resurrection. So this counts too, right? The, the word and sacrament, but not without the resurrection. The church that does not preach that the only hope we have is he rose from the dead and we don't, but he did. The church that doesn't know that dies. It dies in its own pride. Huh? The church that knows that we live from the king's blood. He feeds us with water from his own mouth. We live and we live forever. We live forever, yeah? We see that forever glory in the transfiguration on, in chapter 17 where he shows, like that angel in the reading, all the, the power and fiery lightning of his Godhead shining forth from him. He comes down from that mountain to give a sermon on forgiveness in chapter 18. Uh, I want to track through what we've said here on this, these sermons so far. A, a sermon blessing you for hearing what he says. A sermon of parables, which nobody will be able to understand but you because you know it's about Jesus. Hmm? A sermon on hypocrisy, followed by a sermon on forgiveness. That's the arc of this story. This is the God who wants you. Yeah. Uh, from there, I'm, I'm, again, I'm trying to, to fly as high as I can. Uh, there, chapter 19 is focused on how salvation is not possible with man. It's largely about marriage and divorce and how bad our relationships are with each other, but how this leads to us recognizing we're not good enough. We can't make it. Yeah? Um, chapter 20 is a long parable called the parable of the vineyard. Now, do you remember last week we had the song of the vineyard from Isaiah? This parable of the vineyard is Jesus taking that, pulling it forward and saying, I wrote that and I say it's about right now. Uh, uh, again, that's chapter 20. Chapter 21, triumphal entry. Donkey, shout daughter of Zion, Hosanna, Hosanna, palm branches, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, chapter 22 through 25 then is his his last long discourse. It's about the end of the world. It's about the end of every kingdom that ever ends. It's about the end of every day and every life. It's about eschatology, the end of things. And again, it's about the certainty we have that in Jesus, we cannot fail. In Jesus, we cannot fail. Uh, from there, chapter 26, the plot to kill Jesus. The last supper in that upper room. And then you heard the rest read this morning. I mean, how many details? Did, did, it, did it surprise you in that reading? How many details? Every, like what, three sentences, there's like a new story taking place. And you're over here with the soldiers and you're over here with the women and you're over here with, it, 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 it's quite the tale, yeah? What I want us to again pull from today is just exposure. The whole goal this year is exposing you to as much Bible as possible in some 
change up ways so hopefully we don't get too bored with it. But then also to see that these stories aren't just stories again. Matthew wasn't just an author writing a fiction book for you to read on Sunday afternoon. He was telling you what had happened to him. And we skipped over it. He was sitting at a tax booth doing his job, making his money, living well. And again, the king, who he did not believe was coming, came up and said, follow me. And when he did, it changed his life. It freed him from his greed. It reminded him who he was by blood and doubly who he was now baptized by this guy. Yeah. And that's what I want you to take. That today, again, you are a king's man, not a publican. You are a faithful Christian, not a hypocrite. Can you find hypocrisy in your heart? Absolutely. But that is not why God calls you. He calls you away from that and into something new. So think of that this year, a king's or this this day. You are a king's man, a king's woman in the king's world, which he has already conquered. He has shut the jaw of the lion. He has shuttered the bulls of Bashan, as he talks about in Psalm 22. And he intends in every way to make good for you this trust, this faith, this reality. And no matter what else comes in this world, your steadfastness in his body and blood his death and resurrection truly attained for you will keep you preserved every step of the way from now into eternity. And, and when I say you, don't miss it. This is plural, you, St. Paul. This is plural. It's about all you together. How all you together doing what little bits you do every bit this year as you go back and you read Psalm 23 or you go pick up whatever you pick up in Matthew this week, it won't be the same thing as somebody three pews away from you. But somebody three pews away from you is in Matthew this week. And we're scattered all over this area going into Matthew this week. And next week, it'll be something else. And next week, something else. And if you don't think God sees that, then you don't know who your God is. He doesn't just see that. He's going to do it. He's the one making it happen. So that we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Ready to say? He is risen. He is risen. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name.